Father, we're just saying if you're not in it, then I don't want it. Your name is the only name that matters. Father, you're all that we desire. Take the whole world and give me Jesus and let all else fade away. Lord, if that truly is the countenance of our hearts today, Father, that we would speak about you as if you're in the room, that we would listen intently to your word as it's shared with our heart's only desire being that all else would fade away. Find your people faithful. Find their hearts in the right position today. Not only to hear your word, but to be challenged by it and become doers of it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's a familiar story, or at least it should be by now. It's a story I preached about what I'm realizing is like 30 months ago, which seems like a really long time. It's found in Luke chapter 7, and you'll remember that Jesus, as he's in the habit of doing, is traveling throughout the towns in the beginning of his earthly ministry. He's got followers that go from place to place with him, and often they are, they're still not quite accustomed to the way that Jesus is radically challenging the societal norms and the pressures that were in that place at the time in the ancient Near East with the Jewish law, the, the Jewish teachers uh, and, and the, uh, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. And they would always take Jesus to task and his disciples would, would often think, I can only imagine, uh, what, what's, what's our rabbi doing? Why is he always stirring up trouble for himself? But in this particular story that we find in Luke chapter 7, Jesus has been invited to the home of one of the Pharisees, one of the teachers of the law in the town they were in, named Simon. Simon had invited Jesus over, and from the account, what we can read is this was a, uh, in this courtyard that would have been in Simon's home, there were quite a few people gathered there. And as would be the custom, he would recline at table and share a meal And no doubt what would happen is, as the Pharisee had hosted this party of sorts, this get-together, there would be opportunities to ask this rabbi, this prophet, as he was being called, questions, important questions that that were burning inside of of these Jews that were listening. It would also be an opportunity for sinners to come and stand on the outskirts. They wouldn't likely be welcomed inside the Pharisee's home. But they could come and see if they could catch a glimpse of this man that some were calling Messiah. It would be an opportunity as well for the Pharisees to try to catch Jesus in an error. As they liked to try to do and question his knowledge of the law. But on this particular occasion they're there in Simon's home. And the Bible says a sinful woman entered the place. The, the terminology there, sinful woman, you can certainly read as prostitute. That's what it means. And she comes in and she is broken and she is tearful and she can scarcely hold back her emotion. She's crying so much, in fact, that when she kneels behind Jesus 
her tears wash his feet. A scandalous thing. And she begins to wipe his feet with her hair and the tears that are there. And she has an alabaster flask with an expensive ointment and anoints his feet as well. And when I talked about this to you 30 months ago, we were talking about the scandal that is the grace of God. How scandalous this action that Jesus wouldn't condemn it. Certainly everyone there wanted to. The disciples had to have been freaking out a little bit. How long is he going to allow this prostitute to wash his feet with her hair and anoint her feet with this priceless ointment? But that's not how the story unfolds. That's where we'll pick up in Luke chapter 7. The story begins in verse 36, but we've done a little bit of groundwork. And we'll start in verse 39. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, what we just described having happened. And he said to himself, which either is a spoken voice that wasn't meant to be heard by others or an internal monologue. Something that would be surprising for anyone to respond to other than Jesus perhaps. But he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Again, a prostitute. And Jesus answering to him, as if Simon was actually talking to Jesus. Jesus answering to him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water from my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss as I entered your abode, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? A bit of a rhetorical question, as they would have well understood that only God can believe sin, can, can forgive sins. That's one of those instances where we see the divinity of Christ on full display, that he would be able to forgive sins. This scandalous act, this notion that somehow her sins are forgiven because she has loved, but then this, this declaration that he who forgives little loves little. There seems to be this, uh, this inextricable link between forgiveness and love, which we want to pay very close attention to today. Remember, this series is Address the Mess, and we're talking about marriage and the things that can derail a marriage or the things that can prevent a marriage from thriving in the way that God would want it to. And I promise we'll get to that. 
But there's this reciprocity between love and forgiveness that we see at play here. And I think it's going to be important for us to establish this relationship. What Jesus, in effect, says is the one who loves is forgiven, and the one who is forgiven loves. The one who loves is forgiven, and the one who is forgiven loves. That's worth writing down. The woman believes in Jesus Christ. How do you know that, Pastor Corey? Well, she walked into a place where she didn't belong. She certainly would have been known. Her reputation would have preceded her. And she would have walked into this place clearly broken. But she goes and weeps at the feet of this man who is not her husband. That's a scandalous act. And you wouldn't do that unless you believed that he had the ability to forgive you of your sins or the ability to heal She believed in Jesus Christ. Her actions indicate that she understood his deity and his power as the Messiah. Why else would she throw herself at his feet? Her love and her actions, her love in action, led to Jesus declaring her sins forgiven. Again, there's this link between love and forgiveness that seems to work both ways. But her forgiveness... Because, of course, she was forgiven positionally by having placed her faith in Jesus Christ, even perhaps before meeting him, led her to love in a way that even the Pharisee couldn't love. Don't miss this. Her love in action caused Jesus to declare her forgiven, but her knowing that she was forgiven or had the potential to be forgiven by this man caused her to love deeply. There's this simultaneous dovetailing of love and forgiveness that we see at play here that Jesus feels it's important enough to point out by telling that story about the debtors. One who had been forgiven a debt of 500 denarii and one who had been forgiven a debt of 50 denarii. Which one will love the master who's forgiven the debt more? And he tells Simon, you have judged rightly because he says the one for whom the greater debt was forgiven. What does this have to do with our own forgiveness, our own ability to forgive, and our ability to love? And how does that pertain to your marriage? The dots maybe haven't connected yet. Have you ever noticed that people who have really messed up in their lives tend to be really good at forgiveness, at offering it? People who, by their own account, are depraved sinners and who would tell you as much seem to be really forgiving folks. If you've messed up over and over again in your life, which by the way, we all have, but some of us know it more than others. Some of you have continued to sin every day of your life and have failed to acknowledge it, right? But those of us who know that we are totally depraved and there's no goodness within us apart from that which God would offer to us by His grace, we're really quick to forgive. And perhaps in your marriage, one of you is that person who's constantly messed up in the marriage and had to say, I'm sorry, but by extension is also the one who's really great at forgiving. All offenses of all types. Doesn't mean it doesn't bother you. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt deeply. It doesn't mean that you can't re-feel or resent that hurt. But that person has learned something about forgiveness that those who feel that they are righteous before God haven't learned. 
Do you see Simon the Pharisee certainly believed that he had nothing for which to be forgiven. He had kept the law his entire life, or so he would have told himself. In fact, he was doing the right and the religious thing. And we see here what happens that religious people always get bent out of shape when we try to reach the lost. Because this prostitute comes in and he says she shouldn't belong here. And certainly if this man were a prophet, he would know the type and kind of woman who it is who's kneeling at his feet. And Jesus responds. If you've been forgiven much in your life, you understand the value of that forgiveness. You understand that you didn't deserve that forgiveness. That you did nothing to earn that forgiveness. And therefore you are likely quick to offer Forgiveness. On the contrary, those people who have walked the straight line their entire lives tend to be fairly stingy with forgiveness, and they want you to pay for it before you will receive it. They want you to apologize just right to make sure that you mean it before they release you from their justified wrath. It's contrary to conventional wisdom, as most things in God's economy tend to be. But the rejects and the most sinful among us seem to have, they seem to be closer to Jesus Christ or closer to salvation than those who have believed in and relied upon their own goodness. And so we see Simon who knew the word of God and was trying to live it out, who was devoutly religious, misses salvation when it's right in front of his face. Jesus in his home, and the sinful woman who was willing and able to be broken grasps it. He was forgiven little, loves little. This is the same story that we see in the parable, which we often will call the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You remember this story, right? We call it the parable of the prodigal son, because that's kind of the title that most of the Bibles portray it as. It's either, though, rather, more likely uh, should be referred to as the parable of the merciful and gracious father or the parable of the self-righteous older son. Because the younger son is just a literary device in this story, not the main player whatsoever. As you look at your Go Deeper this week, we'll, we'll explore that a little bit more. But you remember the story of the son wants his father's inheritance before he dies. He basically says, would you die already to his dad? And dad won't die. So he says, can I have my inheritance early? He goes off and squanders it in a far, faraway land. This is the derelict brother, right? Gets to the end of himself and comes back. All the meanwhile... The older son has been working in the field every day of his life, done exactly what the father said. He's been right by the father's side. And yet when the the younger son returns, the father acts in a very undignified way for a Jewish father and runs across the field and throws himself upon his son and kisses him, places a ring on his finger and a robe on his back and kills the fatted calf, and you know the rest of the story. But the older son is so upset by this. You never... I've been here my whole life. You've never killed a fatted calf for me. And we remember the audience in that story from the beginning of the chapter in in Luke 15 and verse 2 that he's talking to the Pharisees again. And that older son represents the self-righteous one. It's the same story that we read here in Luke 7. One is a narrative account 
and one is a parable. It's also what we read about in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, the parable of the day laborers. You'll remember this story as well. There were some workers available for work in a vineyard, and the master of the field comes to them at the very dawn of the morning and says, I will pay you this wage for a day's worth of labor. They say, that's a great deal. And they go into the vineyard and work all day. A little bit later in the day, he goes and gathers some more laborers and says, I will pay you this wage for a a day's work in the vineyard. And then he ultimately goes at the 11th hour. There's only one hour of work left for the day and gets some more guys and takes them into the field and pays them the same thing. At the end of the day, everybody's collecting their, their paycheck, as it were, and they all get paid the same thing. And the guys who have been there from the morning are like, wait a minute. We did 10, 11 hours of work. And this joker over here just got here. He's not even sweaty. And you're paying him the same thing? And the master says, I have not wronged you. I I chose what to give to them. These are my resources. I choose that anybody who's worked in this vineyard, no matter how long it is, that's the wage. And they get so bent out of shape because they've been there all day. It's the same as the older son. In that parable. It's the same as Simon the Pharisee. Feels like he's got one up on the prostitute. The older son feels like he should have one up on the younger son. The guys who've been there for morning feel like they should have one up on the guys who got there late. Is anybody happy about student loan forgiveness? Anybody? Got a bunch of student loans? You guys are all financially responsible. Wait till second service. I'm not all, I'm, I'm not all uh, super excited about it because I've paid all of mine off, right? And that's not fully true. My wife has some student loans, so I'm pretty thrilled that that might be a thing. Do you see there? You, you see the schism though, right? And then when they even talk about the lawfulness of this or whether or not it's fair, they say, well, there's all these people who've worked so hard to pay off their student loans, and now we're going to forgive the, 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 the student debt of these other people who have it, and they haven't had to pay theirs off. That's not fair. Suck it up, buttercup. Life ain't fair. Right? I don't know what you think about that, but it, it, it demonstrates to us, it illustrates to us this exact thing. We might not be able to make sense of the day laborers or the older son in that Hebrew context, but we can certainly understand it in the context of student loans, whether or not you have any, you have a friend who's got some. And you're like, oh man, I do this. I do this too. I am the older son. I am Simon the Pharisee. I am the laborers who've been there all day. I am the one who worked hard and paid off all of his student debt. Why do we have such a twisted notion of fairness? Why do we believe that there's something inherently good about each and every one of us that we deserve anything from anyone He who is forgiven little loves little. Is it possible that our love in this context for our spouse is held back because we forget how much we've had forgiven? Because we forget the condition of our heart. Because we look at our spouse as if there are somehow these tipping scales rather than realize that we don't even get to climb up on the scales. God owns that. It's interesting. 
He who has forgiven little loves little. The problem with many of us when it comes to our inability or our unwillingness to forgive is that we fail to rightly recognize how much we ourselves have been forgiven. This is the problem with all of our expressions of love. In all the things that we call that we are called to do, in all the things that the church does. When we just went through membership essentials with some fine folks this last week and we talk about the ten commitments of a member and they're not this is not these aren't North Point creations. These are things that we see in the Bible that that members of a local assembly do, right? And we we pray for our our pastors and our leaders and we we serve with our time because we believe that you can't serve God without serving others. And we extend God's love to those who come here and we stick it out when it gets hard because the church is where sanctification is designed to happen. And we talk about how Change will happen and and an attack will come from Satan and vision refines, but sheep also bite. And the people that are sitting in these chairs next to you will betray you at some point in the future. But you have to stay in order to learn how to forgive. And I mentioned something that a pastor friend of mine used to say during new member class. And I told this in first cap as well, so you guys might find this familiar. But a pastor friend of mine who's been long since retired would often say in new member class that his best advice he could give to the people that were there was, leave before you get hurt. That's terrible advice. Leave before you get hurt, he would say. In fact, when I uh, gave the best man's address at my brother's wedding, I told them that my best advice for them was, to leave before you get hurt. That's the same reaction. They're like, is he serious? There's more, right? Is he serious? I said, leave before you get hurt. But if you stay, you'll experience something so rich and so deep and so powerful and so transformative and so genuine and so God-ordained that it'll blow you away. The same thing happens in the context of the local church. The same thing happens in marriage. That's where we learn how to forgive. That's where we learn the depth of our own depravity. That's where we learn how much we need forgiveness. Stay. Just stay. Many of you harbor unforgiveness in your marriage because you feel as though you have the upper hand. Perhaps you're not the one who's screwed up as much. And perhaps your spouse screwed up big time. Over and over again. And you hold all the cards, or so you think you do. Because it was a very egregious pain and hurt. And I'm not discounting that. And I'm not here to pretend that that wasn't real. And I'm not here to pretend that that does not merit some kind of uh, amends or a merit a change in behavior and a change of heart and a sincere apology. But forgiveness can't be contingent upon those things because if it were, none of us would be here. None of us would be forgiven. We would all be destined to spend an eternity separated from God's presence to bless in a place called hell. God's forgiveness isn't contingent. He calls us to himself and we respond. But it's not a contingent faith. We consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verses 20 and 21 about forgiving. 
Peter came up to our Lord and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and then I forgive him? As many as seven times? Like, that seems like a lot. As many as seven times, Lord? Jesus said to him, no, no, no. I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations, but 70 times seven. This hyperbolic statement of you continue to forgive because judgment belongs to the Lord. There's a man who lives in our community who does tree work for a living. And some time ago, a number of years ago, on good faith, he had come out and given me an estimate to do some tree work at my house. And, and you can roll your eyes at me, but I gave the guy some money, right? Because he wanted some money down. And I gave it to him. Because I'm stupid. And he never did the tree work. And so he had effectively stolen $500 from me. And the first time I ran into him in public a few weeks after that, it was like there was something in me that was like, all right, here we go. This is my chance. And I said, hey, Frank, remember me? And he looked at me. He's like, oh, yeah, hey, uh, I've been meaning to get back by there and do that work for you. And I knew he did. This was never going to happen, right? And so I pushed down the sinful, fleshly part of myself that wanted to enact retribution on this guy. And I went about my day. Well, I, I continue to run into this guy all the time in our community. And some point about a year ago, I said, hey, Frank, I forgive you, man. And he said, what? I said, I forgive you. He's like, okay, thanks. I said, no, what I mean is I forgive you. Of, I'll never mention this again. It does, I don't even feel the pain anymore. I just have to let you know that I've released you. God told me to let it go. Very shortly after this, I was talking to someone, and I referred to this guy. I said, you know, Frank, the guy who stole $500 from me. And the Lord convicted me and was like, you can't talk about him like that anymore. He's now just Frank the tree guy. Now, I'm not going to recommend him to any of you. And if your tree guy's named Frank, I swear it wasn't him, right? We'll, we'll say that his name was Hank. That's what I'll have to do next service, right? Listen, I was like, I can't. There was something in me that I was resurrecting that past hurt, even in speaking about him. And I'm telling you only this story this morning to illustrate that it can happen very subtly to us. Pastor Steve last week said, don't resurrect these past hurts in our life, especially in our marriages, because they will block intimacy. They will block what God desires to accomplish in our marriage. They will block, in fact, even our marriages becoming testimonies for the kingdom of God and for other Christian marriages. Listen, I'm keenly aware of my sin, past and present, and I'm incredibly aware that it's abominable to God. Uh, and so because I know that, who am I then to withhold forgiveness from anyone else? We see two great words that are used in the New Testament that talk about forgiveness. One of them is this word that is translated sometimes as patience and sometimes as long-suffering. We see it in Galatians 5, and we see it in 1 Corinthians 13, and we see it in some other places. It's this word macrothumia is the Greek word, macrothumia. Translated patience or long-suffering. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, macrothumia. Love is patient, love is kind in 1 Corinthians.
2015 macrothumia. Long-suffering. This means to withhold a justified wrath. This means that God's love and patience and long-suffering is such that he withholds a justified wrath. What does that mean for me? Even if I count my wrath against you as justified because you are the transgressor, even if your spouse has transgressed against you and you have a justified wrath against them, something that you can mete out against them, God's patience, God's long-suffering would be to extend mercy by withholding the justified wrath. The other word that we see that's in the New Testament translated as forgiveness or to forgive is echerizomai. And this word means to extend grace. And so we know that there's this inextricable link between mercy and grace, and that's exactly what forgiveness is, right? We withhold the wrath that's justified to us. God withholds the wrath that's justified to him, and he suffers long. He fails to punish Or he withholds punishment in the same way we should do that. But then echerizomai on top of that to extend grace and love and something undeserved. Withholding the deserved wrath and giving the undeserved favor is how God loves and forgives. God is long-suffering and forgiving and we must act like God in our Christian marriage. It is not easy. You don't know what he did to me. You don't know what she said to me over and over again. You don't know how much it hurt. No, I don't. But our Lord, even in the moment of his beating, said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. How would God respond is what I want to ask in my own marriage. How would God respond out of his love? And how has he responded to me? How has he not punished me for the terrible things that I've done? And how has he extended unmerited favor to me that I never deserved? God forgives and then never retracts it, never takes it back. Remember this terrible terminology that we used as kids, some of us probably. And for those of you who've never heard of it, you can just judge me. Remember how we used to call people Indian giver? When they would give a gift and then take it back. I don't know the etymology of this word. I don't know if the Native Americans were particularly known for giving a gift to someone and then taking it back. And then we would call it Indian giver on top of that instead of Native American giver, right? The people of India, I think, are probably uh, more faithful. I I don't know where the etymology of this term is, but we used to say it all the time, right? You give something and you take it back. That's a terrible term. You can't get away with saying that. Why is it that we give forgiveness and then retract it? In fact, I would ask you, is that forgiveness at all? I see some heads shaking, no, I think you're right. I think that's not forgiveness at all, to give it and then to retract it. We know that unforgiveness robs intimacy and depth. It inhibits growth in our Christian marriages, and it leaves this lonely shell where God desires this abundant garden. It gets in the way of communication, uh, and it causes us as spouses to not expect the best from one another when there's unforgiveness. We we refuse to do this macrothumia long-suffering, and withhold justified wrath. 
And I think we're in extreme error of believing that somehow we have a justified wrath against another human being. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. He is the only one who is in a position of righteousness and holiness and goodness. And he alone is the one who has the responsibility and the right and the honor and glory to punish wrongdoing in our world. But we don't trust him with that. And I would submit to you that when we withhold forgiveness, we are in fact violating the first commandment. What's the first commandment, Mr. Corey? That you shall have no other gods before me. But when we withhold forgiveness, we play God. We play God in our own marriages and withhold forgiveness from one another. And again, you might say, you don't know how much it hurt and you don't know what he did to me or you don't know what she did to me or said to me or is even currently in the process of still doing. No, I don't. But I do know that there's nowhere that God tells us that we're to be unforgiving. His desire, his preceptive will is that we forgive. I've experienced unforgiveness in my own life. Uh, I harbored unforgiveness toward my earthly father for a really long time. My parents divorced when I was a teenager, and I really don't know why it is that my dad and I never had the kind of relationship that I wanted us to have. But it was very painful for me as a young man. And then as I grew up and I um, had a family of my own and my earthly father was not as involved as I thought he should be or he wasn't um, as attentive as I thought he should be and wasn't as um, interested in the things that I was interested in growing up as I thought he should be, as I clearly was surrounded with friends that had great fathers. I created this model of an earthly father for my own dad, and he didn't meet my expectations, and so I harbored unforgiveness against him. And it made our relationship impossible. There was a point in time years ago, probably 2009, I was in counseling and struggling with this deeply, and the counselor said, you need to forgive your dad. And I said, I just can't forgive him if he doesn't acknowledge how hurtful this has been to me. And my counselor, who was a Christian counselor, explained, that's not how forgiveness works. You have to lead with forgiveness. You have to lead with forgiveness for love to be reciprocated. And it took everything in me. I remember it vividly. I remember where we were and what I was wearing and what my dad had on that day and what the salt spray off of the intercoastal waterway smelled like and how sunny it was and what the gravel sounded like under my feet. It is indelibly marked in my mind when I had to look my dad face to face and say, you've hurt me deeply in in ways you don't even know and I forgive you. I'm letting it go. I cannot continue to live with unforgiveness toward you. In that moment, something happened, and I saw him completely differently. He wasn't this giant, foreboding figure who had let me down. He was now just a man. A man, in fact, who was shorter than me. The first time I probably realized that in my whole life. A man who I saw through now God's eyes. In that moment, I can't explain it to you in the time that we have remaining. 
but it softened that relationship. And it was a tremendous gift for me because it would just be a year later that my dad would become terminally ill, an illness that would take his life in three short years. And had we not had that opportunity, had I not had that opportunity to forgive him when he was healthy, I would have always thought that the only reason I had extended that forgiveness to him was because he got sick. But he and I had an opportunity to rebuild that relationship later in his life. I know that pain. But I also know what God was able to do through forgiveness. In my own marriage, I'm the one who is the screw-up. I'm the one who has had to say I'm sorry a lot of times. Many of times when I didn't mean it. And many of times when I meant it. I'm the one who betrayed trust in my relationship with my bride over and over again. And she is the one who has graciously forgiven me over and over again. And I've learned that from her. So no, I don't know what it is that you're dealing with in your marriage. But I would ask you, are you willing to be so arrogant as to play God in your marriage? Is your spouse here today with you? Yes? Anybody who's got their spouse here? I see spouses who aren't like raising their hands. They're like, no, I'm not. Look at your spouse and say, there's an enemy of our marriage. Look at your spouse and say, there is an enemy of our marriage. And now say, but it's not you. There is an enemy of your marriage and it is not the person sitting next to you. I promise you this. And you'll forget this and you'll go home and on Tuesday night you'll have a big fight and then you won't speak to each other and you'll roll over to the opposite sides of the bed and it'll be this real silent little humph, you know. And your spouse is not the enemy of your marriage. You see, Satan has a special hatred for marriage, just like he has a special hatred for the church. And don't miss this. What does Christ compare the church to but to marriage? What does he compare marriage to but to Christ in the church? It is the proving ground where we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There is no me and Jesus land in the New Testament. That's not where anything good happens. It happens in relationship, in marriage, and in the church. If we can manage to figure out how to forgive one another, then our marriages could change the world, the way that God intended them to. Imagine what a tremendous testimony yours can be if we cease being so arrogant as to play God in our own marriage. Church, this is a challenge. Many of you will desire and require counseling. Many of you have conversations that need to be worked through with another person. But what if we recognize what Jesus Christ did, his sacrifice, the depth of it, and by extension, the depth of our own sinfulness, and the way that he loved and forgave us, we would love and forgive the one whom he put in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly and gracious Father, it is a privilege 
Lord, to speak from your word into the marriages of the church. Lord, I know that you place a high priority and you give a high place to Christian marriage. In fact, it is the first human institution created by you. And Lord, I know that the enemy has a special hatred for Christian marriage. Fortify these who are here in this place and those who are online watching. God, fortify them to make a very difficult decision in their own flesh, but a crystal clear decision based on your word that they would be forgiving, that they would remember that he who has been forgiven little loves little. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 